So over the last uh, month or so, we have been uh, talking about what it means to change and to be transformed by God in the broader context of following Jesus or practicing the way of Jesus, being people that commit to following Jesus, not following some ideal or some just set of beliefs, but following the real resurrected Jesus Christ. And as we do that, that God's desire and that God's power in us begins to change us and begins to transform us into the people he has created us to be, to live the life that he has called us to live, to experience his goodness day in and day out. But the reality that we've talked about over over and over and over again, not just over the last month or so, but really uh, almost every Sunday that we've been together over the last uh, year plus is the fact that following Jesus, that practicing the way of Jesus is hard. It is difficult. It is not a, a, a path towards comfortab- comfortability. It's not an inspirational thing. It's not uh, something, following Jesus is not therapeutic. It doesn't make us just feel good about ourselves. It is hard. It is difficult. It is a struggle. And that's what I want to leave you with today. If you walk, when you walk out, this is what I want you to know today. That choosing to live life with God under the rule of God places us directly in a war that's being waged against God. Living life with God under the rule of God means that you and I have been placed directly into a war that we are facing opposition, that we are experiencing the reality that there is a a war being waged against God's rule and God's authority. And that is the opposition. (laughs) That is the difficulty. That is why it is hard for us when we think about change and being transformed. That's why it feels like it's an uphill battle. That's why we feel like often we take one step forward and two steps back. That's why when we go out and we uh, try to bring light into darkness in our community, when we try to offer help, when we try to do good things that people are still against us, that we face resistance, it is because we are in a war because we are in a battle that's being waged against the God that we have chosen to serve and the Jesus that we have chosen to follow. Evil is never abstract. Evil is never impersonal. And it is because we experience evil in such a powerful and often personal way we're left to believe that there must be some other presence at work, some other presence that we don't see, some other presence that is working against what we are trying to do in following Jesus. And so I want you to turn with me to Ephesians chapter 6, because over the next few minutes, I want to take a look at what that opposition is who that opposition is, what we're against, the battle 
the war that we are a part of being followers of Jesus Christ. Ephesians chapter 6, and if you're using one of the Bibles around you, it's on page 569. This is the Apostle Paul writing, starting in verse 10. He says, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. I want to stop right there and I want to work backwards through those three verses. Paul says, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. Another way of saying, we don't fight against other human beings. We do not fight against other humans, but against rulers, authorities, and cosmic powers. Paul uses this kind of language throughout his letters in the New Testament. And these words for rulers, authorities, powers in his other letters. And then if you look in Greek literature outside of the Bible, the words used for these that we translate rulers, authorities, cosmic powers are terms that are used for geographical rulership and authority. So, it would be, you know, in our vernacular, what we would think of as kings and queens, you know, a monarchy, a, a president with a government over a specific piece of land, of territory, that their rule and that their reign is, 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 uh, is bound by, it's a territorial reign. And Paul says that these rulers, these authorities, these cosmic powers, that they rule over what he calls this present darkness, that they are spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. What Paul is telling us here, what he was telling the Ephesians, is that there is an evil that we see. And we see it, right? We see it in, in, in other people. We see it in, in systems and in institutions and in things that are carried out, evil deeds that are carried out every single day around this world. There is an evil that we see, but there is also an evil that we don't see. There is an evil that we see, but also an evil that we don't see. Our experience of that evil, the evil that we do see, is due to the fact that there is a rulership, that there is an authority in the space that we don't see. The, what, the evil that we see, that we feel, that we experience on a day-to-day -day basis is because there is a rulership, an authority, evil powers in a space that we don't see. It's not that the evil that we see is of no consequence. But what Paul is trying to get these Ephesians to see, and us by extension, is that the evil we see is not where we start. When we try to make sense of what we're experiencing, what we feel, the opposition that we're against, we do not start with what we see. We have to start with what we don't see. So that begs the question, who are these powers? Who are these authorities? Who are these rulers that Paul is talking about here? And I want to quickly take you to two passages in the Old Testament. 
One written by Moses, the other written by a man named Asaph in the Psalms. They give us a picture of what Paul is referring to here. So the first is Deuteronomy chapter 32. Deuteronomy chapter 32. And if you don't want to turn there, that's fine. You can just listen to me read these. Deuteronomy chapter 32. And in this chapter, Moses who has been the leader of God's people for years, the, the, the one who led them out of captivity in Egypt. He has come to the end of his life, and he is transitioning leadership from himself to a man named Joshua. And Moses uh, is, is standing before the people, and these are kind of his final words, like his last will and testament. And what he's trying to get the people of God to see is that this is the God you serve. This is, here's what God has done for you. Here is what he has promised to do. Here is what he has done. And so as I look ahead and know that I will not be with you during this next season of following God, this God, I want to encourage you. I want to challenge you to not give up. I want to challenge you to stay faithful. I want to challenge you to walk in obedience and serve this God. But page 99, if you're using the Bibles on the seats, Deuteronomy 32. But within this song or psalm that Moses uh, proclaims to the people, I want you to look at verse 8 and 9 in this. Verse 8 and 9. And Moses says this, When the Most High gave to the nations their inheritance, when he divided mankind, he fixed the borders of the peoples according to the number of the sons of God. But the Lord's portion is his people. Jacob is his allotted heritage. Now, that First phrase, the most high, is, is a phrase that was used of Yahweh, the God of Israel, the, the one true God. And so Moses says that when the one true God, Yahweh, gave to the nations their inheritance, he divided mankind according to the number of the sons of God. And that phrase, sons of God, is used throughout the Old Testament. That word God is the Hebrew word Elohim. Have you ever heard that word before? Elohim. And we, also, we often use that word as a word for God, the God of Israel, the God that we, you know, we're thinking of, you know, Yahweh. But the way that the biblical writers used that word was in the, a more general sense. It's a, just a word. It's the Hebrew word for God or gods. And it's used to describe other divine beings, other divine beings, sons and daughters of God is simply just a way to classify other divine beings. They are a class of divine beings. They are a type of of divine beings. And what Moses is seemingly saying here is that the God of Israel, Yahweh, delegated authority over these nations to these other divine beings. And these divine beings were to act as his representatives to rule over the peoples in his name, but God chose a specific people for himself. And who was that? 
That was Israel or Jacob, the people of Jacob, God's chosen people. So God has kind of this council of rulers, divine beings that he has given authority to, to rule over other nations in his name. Now turn with me to Psalm chapter 82. We'll flesh this out a little bit more. Psalm chapter 82. If somebody has a, uh, a page number, say again. 282. Psalm chapter 82. Again, written by a man named Asaph. And he writes this. God has taken his place in the divine council. In the midst of the gods, he holds judgment. How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? Give justice to the weak and the fatherless. Maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. They, neither, they have neither knowledge nor understanding. They walk about in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are shaken. I said, you are gods, sons of the most high, all of you. Nevertheless, like men, you shall die and fall like any prince. Arise, O God, judge the earth, for you shall inherit the nations. What's going on here in this psalm? What's the picture that Asaph is painting for the reader, us here? He's telling us here that the God of Israel, the most high, has called a council meeting to judge the gods for their unjust rule. This isn't polytheism. The writers of the Old Testament didn't believe in multiple gods. Again, that word gods is Elohim. It's, it's used for divine beings. It doesn't speak to an attribute of a God, but the place of residence. They are spiritual beings. They are divine beings. And he says that the sons of God here, divine beings under the authority of the God of gods, Yahweh, are being judged. And what are they being judged for? Their unjust rule. The fact that they have shown favor to the wicked the fact that they have allowed the, the, uh, the ways of God to be trampled on, that Yahweh's judgment reveals something, is that these rulers, these divine rulers that God had given the authority over peoples of the earth have rebelled against him. They have ruled in a different way. They have gone in a different direction than what God's desire was. This divine, this divine council was supposed to rule the nations like God, but they had turned against God and they had turned against his authority and the results were injustice, wickedness, darkness. So what do these two passages tell us here? That Yahweh is an Elohim, a God, but no other gods are like Yahweh. 
No other divine beings are like Yahweh, but there are divine beings. Those spiritual forces, those rulers, those authority. When Yahweh tells his people over and over and over again, don't worship any other gods besides me. Do you think he would tell his people not to worship something that didn't exist? There are spiritual forces, there are spiritual beings, there are spiritual rulers that are opposed to God. There are spiritual powers that are carrying out an agenda that is contrary to God's, to God's agenda. And the scriptures aren't super clear about how they rule or, or what their agendas are, but one thing is true. They are all opposed to the one true God, Yahweh, and his people. The rulers, the authorities that Paul is talking about in Ephesians chapter 6, what Paul is giving us here is a worldview. Paul is saying, when you look at the world, I want you to look at it this way. I want you to know that there are things that you see and that those things are important, that those things are, need to be addressed, but you need to know that what you see is the product of what you don't see. That there are spiritual forces and rulers that are ruling over the nations of this earth, over the peoples of this earth, the systems of this earth, the institutions of this earth, the governments of this earth that are opposed to God and to Jesus Christ. Instead of life with God under the rule of God, they want life under their rule and under their way, uh, reign for their aim and for their purposes. Does that make sense? We don't hear a lot of sermons and messages taught on Psalm 82 because that's confusing. It's like gods and councils of the gods, but we don't obviously have time to go through it all here on a Sunday morning. But when you trace through the scriptures, the scriptures refer to this over and over and over again. Now, going back to Ephesians chapter 6, Paul encourages us to stand against what? The schemes of the devil. So here is this devil figure. Who is Paul talking about? So we have all these spiritual forces and these evil powers and authorities that are arrayed against God. They're arrayed against us that stand in the way of righteousness and justice and peace and goodness, that stand in the way against how God wants to transform and change each of us. And then Paul specifically narrows in on what he calls the schemes of the devil. So who is this devil? Did you know that Satan and devil are not proper names? Those aren't names that refer to this individual. Satan is simply the Hebrew word for adversary. Devil is the Greek word for a false accuser or a slanderer. Even that, that name that we often hear, Lucifer, if you've heard that, that's not a name. That's, that's a Latin description uh, of, of, uh, of a morning star. 
So the Old Testament never uses names for who we think about as Satan, for who we think about as the devil, who Paul is referring to here. Those names came later in Jewish writings. But what Paul and who Paul is talking about here, he's talking about the serpent figure from the garden. The, the first rebel against God, the first challenger to God's authority. And the Bible refers to him as the first, but also the primary adversary and enemy of God. But only one verse in the New Testament, in Luke chapter 11, mentions this adversary in connection with demons. Um, And here in chapter six of Ephesians, we see that there's a relationship between this adversary or the devil and other spiritual enemies. But the Bible isn't specific about that relationship. The Bible doesn't give us in detail how the devil, how the enemy of God interacts and and has, does he have authority over all of these spiritual powers or just some? And the Bible leaves a lot of this to be unclear. But what is clear is the devil does have authority. The devil does have power. The devil does work within the systems of this world. But one thing is true, and one thing that we need to understand is the devil does not personally attack or tempt any one of us. He is not all-powerful. He is not all-present. He is not all-knowing. The devil works through this enemy, this adversary of God, works through the systems of darkness and works through these spiritual powers and rulers and and evil spiritual beings with one, again, one common goal, direct opposition to God and to Jesus and to the church. Over and over and over again, we are warned about these schemes of the devil to be on guard, to watch out, to understand that the goal is destruction. The goal of these spiritual forces, whether being fully under the authority of God's enemy, the adversary, being partial, however that interplay works, the goal is the same. The destruction of the church, which means the destruction of God's plan and God's purposes. That's what we need to understand here. But before we move any further, I just want to talk about a couple of obstacles that we face when you're hearing these things. And maybe you are. As you're filtering what I'm saying and what we're reading through Scripture through your mind, there's a couple of things as I was thinking this week that that stand in our way. And the first is that we often as Christians claim to be spiritual and to think spiritual but in fact, we think and live like skeptics, right? We claim to believe in the supernatural, but we live like skeptics. We, this talk of the supernatural world, and, and I can even see some of you all, the looks on your faces and your body, it's uncomfortable. It's uncomfortable because we are bending as a society and as a culture and in the church under the weight of rationalism of what we can see and what we can touch and what we can make sense of, what we can put into a formula and figure out. We have been taught that anything worth believing in, that we need to figure that out, 
that we need to minimize the risk in putting all of our eggs in one basket, you know, that we need to know how things work. We need to understand. And what we can understand is what we can see and we can feel and we can touch and we can make sense of. We sometimes look as the church, you know, as at, at people who talk about spiritual, the supernatural things and, and, and the work of these spiritual forces is like, oh, those are kind of the crazy charismatic people. You know, those are the people who they don't really know their Bible well. They just act on emotion and on feeling and they're all about experience. And, you know, sometimes that's true. Sometimes that is true. But we can sometimes wrap ourselves as a church in the guise of being people who acknowledge that there is more than what we see, but then we live our lives as it is only about what we can see. We fail to understand that the biblical writers did not keep the supernatural at arm's length. They were not skeptical about understanding that there are spiritual forces at work in this world. And for us to look back and say, well, that was before the enlightenment. That was before we understand, un understood really how things would work. Who are we to judge that? Who are we to, to, to make that definition? And I think that leads us to the second thing is that so often in the church, if you've grown up in the church, if you have experience under the teaching of the church, we are trained to think that the history of Christianity is the context of interpreting the Bible. The history of Christianity, meaning the creeds and the confessions and our denominational preferences and beliefs, that those, that's the lens through which we should read the, what the writers of Scripture have to say. But to interpret the Bible correctly means that we have to interpret it within the context that it was written, right? Amen. We need to understand who were these men writing this book, these books and these letters, and what was their worldview? What, what, what was their context in which they were writing? These were people in the ancient Near East and Mediterranean between the second millennium BC and first century AD. And they saw these things. They wrote about these things that God used them and spoke through them to communicate what he wants us to know. And so what we are in danger of doing every time we open up the scriptures is reading our 21st century American modern worldview into the pages of this book. Amen. And so we need to step back and we need to really figure out what is going on here? What are these? What was the intent here? And it's very, very clear. The intent of all these passages that we, we have read is this, that we need to acknowledge that there is a spiritual force at work. We shouldn't be afraid to attribute what we see, what we feel to the spiritual forces that are at play in the spiritual realms. We need to know that the adversary of God and the powers of darkness are out to destroy us because they want to destroy God. And we need to take seriously the power of the spiritual enemies of God. And that is why Paul uses this kind of language, these metaphor, this metaphor of war, this meta, these metaphors of armor, this battle language, because what Paul wants us to see is that this is the life that we live. 
This is our reality. Be strong in the Lord, he says, in the strength of his might. Put on the armor of God. Notice what he says. To stand against what? Not the scheme of the devil, but the schemes, plural. The schemes of the devil. And often when we think about the ways and the methodology that the, that the enemy and the adversary of God uses against the church, we, we think in very small ways. We think in very unbiblical ways. Because often the schemes that, and the methods that the devil uses against the people of God are not full frontal attack. And that's often what we experience, right? That's why Paul has to remind us that we aren't doing battle with flesh and blood because we think that the real attack is coming from out there. The people and, and the politicians and the laws that are being passed and who sits on the Supreme Court and all of these things that we can get so just bent out of shape over. And it's because we fail to realize that that is not the way that often the devil works against God's people. He schemes. He manipulates. He uses propaganda. He lies to us. He tries to outflank us. And often we are caught off guard because he uses evil that doesn't look like evil. He uses evil that we aren't likely to recognize as evil. Evil that masquerades as good, as coming from God himself. I mean, just think about it. Think of all of the good things that God has given us. Our, our jobs, our family, our, 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 uh, our prosperity, our health. Like all of these things that we can very easily turn into gods themselves, that we very easily can allow to divert our attention from worshiping and following God. The devil often uses evil that doesn't look like evil, evil that looks like good, evil that looks like it's coming from God to dist distract us, to trip us up, to lull us to sleep, as we talked about a few, few weeks ago. I think we can look at the armor of God that Paul mentions here to get a picture of how the devil attacks. What kind of warfare are we in? Look at what Paul says here, starting in verse 14. Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Truth, righteousness, peace, faith, salvation, the word of God. Paul says to put on these things, to take them up. There's that same sense that Paul uses other places in his letters where he talks about um, um, walking with Jesus as changing clothes and putting on clothes, putting things on our body. Have you heard that phrase, you know, clothes makes the man, clothes makes the woman? Like, what is that phrase saying? That 
when we put on these qualities, they determine who we are. They determine who we think we are, who we see ourselves to be, how we carry ourselves. Paul says, put on this full armor of God because that is what the devil attacks. He attacks who we are. He attacks our identity. These are weapons that have been given to us by Jesus. It's an identity that has been shaped by truth, by righteousness, by peace, by faith, by salvation, by the revelation of God. This is who we are. This is what God says is true about us. This is how we are to live. And we experience day in and day out a scheme of the devil and these spiritual forces to attack what God says is true about us to think about ourselves differently, to live differently, to relate to others differently, to be and exist in this world in a different way than what God has says is true and good and right. God has given us an identity through Jesus. And so what Paul essentially is saying here, put on the full armor of God, put on Jesus Christ, put on Christ. Put on who Christ is. Put on who Christ has made you to be. Live in the reality of that truth. Because when the devil comes, he wants to deceive you. He wants to speak lies about what is true about you. He wants to put you in a place where you are living in a way that is untrue and is contrary to what God says is true about us. And I want you to notice We are not commanded here by Paul to attack the devil or to defeat the devil. What are we commanded to do? To stand firm, to resist the devil. We are called to defend and to stand firm in the face of attack because Jesus is the only one who can attack the devil. Jesus is the only one who can defeat these rulers and these authorities and these cosmic powers. We are to remain and to withstand. And that's why Peter says that the the, the devil, the enemy of God, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for whom he can devour. So stand firm, resist this devil. And what is the promise? He will flee from you. But we're not told when he will flee, how long he will attack, how long he will speak lies. We are told eventually he will, free, he will flee, but we have to stand firm. We have to stand firm knowing that Jesus has fought, that Jesus is fighting, that Jesus will fight and will defeat the devil He will defeat his adversary. He will defeat the spiritual forces that are arrayed against him. And that's why Paul says, and I want to finish in verse 18. After he has talked about the armor of God, he says, praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication to that end, keep alert with all perseverance making supplication for all the saints, praying at all times with all prayer and supplication, 
Keep alert with all perseverance. This is the disposition of one who follows Jesus, of one who practices the way of Jesus, because it's the disposition of a person who is aware of our neediness, aware of our vulnerability to these attacks, aware that what we see and what we experience right in front of our face is not all there is. Praying at all times, keeping alert with all perseverance is the disposition of one who acknowledges what we're up against. That's why our desire for change, our desire to be transformed is not a program. It's not a curriculum. It's not overcoming our past and, you know, working through our sin and trying to just be better people so that we can do what God has called us to do. Living life with God under the rule of God, being transformed by God is a war that we are a part of. Bringing light into darkness, bringing justice to the oppressed, bringing freedom to addicts, healing to those people who have been abused. Why do we experience such opposition when we are trying to do good? It's not because people out there are opposed to us. It's because there are spiritual forces that are keeping us from doing good. There are spiritual forces that are keeping us, that are aligned against the life that God wants to bring to us and to this world. Praying at all times, being alert is an attitude of desperation. We live as followers of Jesus with an attitude of desperation, knowing that if God is not in our transformation, if God is not in our desire to change, if God is not in our efforts to bring light into the darkness that we have no hope because we do not battle against flesh and blood, but we battle against spiritual forces that are arrayed against Jesus and that are powerful. And we need to put on Jesus. We need to put on that truth and that righteousness and that peace and that gospel, that readiness. We need to live by the word of God. And I want to close by contrast, by giving you this contrast. Paul has talked here about the devil, that he tricks, that he schemes, that he disguises evil to make it look good, that he works through ambiguity, that evil is concealed, that destruction is hidden within something that looks true something that looks right, something that looks like it will bring us life, the life that we want, the life that we were created for. But contrast to that, to what has been revealed to us by Jesus. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I have come that you may have life and have it to the full. No tricks no schemes, no bait and switch. We have been offered as people of God, real life, real life in Jesus. 
And when we face the attacks and the deception of God's enemy, we can know that when we follow Jesus, when we put on Jesus, that we trust, when we trust that what Jesus has given us is true and is good and will really bring us life, we can stand firm. We can resist and we can live in freedom. We can experience a taste of what our life will be and what our reality will be for the rest of eternity. Because what we celebrate here every week, when we take a piece of the bread, when we dip it in the juice, is this battle has already been won. That the outcome has already been secured for us. We know the end of the story. We know the end of the story. And that's why we can live in hope now. I don't know why God chooses to allow evil to exist. I don't know why God chooses to allow his enemy and these spiritual forces to continue to resist him and to challenge his authority. I don't know those things because I am not God. But what I do know is that God has promised that one day that will not be reality. And one day he will defeat everyone, that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And so I want to invite you this morning, if you are a follower of Jesus, if you have put your faith in Jesus's death and his resurrection for you to come and to take this in victory, (laughs) to know that because of what we celebrate here, that we have been given the power of God to resist the enemy, and all of his schemes. So come and take this with hope. Take this knowing that as much as you're struggling, as much as you're experiencing sin, as as much oppression and opposition as you are experiencing in your life to live life with God under the rule of God, that there is hope here. There is forgiveness here. There is renewal here. So come and do that this morning with hope and with victory. God, we thank you for these truths from scripture. And we acknowledge that a lot of this is still a mystery to us because we are not God. We are not divine. We do not see all of the things that are going on. But God, we take heart this morning that you have overcome the world that you who live in us and give us power and strength, that you are greater than the adversary that is in the world. And so I pray that we would be people who live in the grace and in the forgiveness of knowing that you love us, that as much as we struggle and as much as we fight, as much as we are tired and haggard and oppressed, and as many times as we just want to give up and do what is easy, that you stand with open arms, calling us back to experience your love and your mercy and your forgiveness, and that you, through your grace, have given us the power to stand, to be steadfast, to persevere, against the power of darkness. I pray that we would be a light in this community. 
I pray that as we trust you every day for our change and for our transformation, for making us new people, as we go into the world, that we would bring that hope and that transformation with us. Make us a church where we bring our transformed and transforming presence into Indianapolis. And knowing, standing firm in the hope that you are with us.